Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. A lot of these frontline environmental battles are indigenous environmental battles and you know renewable energy we don't want to be the last people to get that we want to be right at the top and I want to see a lot more partnerships with First Nations and tribes to ensure that there's this transition because it is so true we have borne the brunt of America's energy policy for 50 years. Like every coal strip mine, every uranium mine, every massive oil project, the tar sands and pipelines on our territories. It's time for justice. And justice looks like renewable energy. That's Winona LaDuke, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Winona LaDuke on Native American eco-justice. Eduardo Galeano, in his masterwork, The Open Veins of Latin America, wrote that 500 years ago, European settler colonialists came to this hemisphere and sank their teeth into the throats of Indian civilizations. You know the story. Genocide, land was stolen, broken promises and broken treaties, survivors exiled to inhospitable reservations. In recent years, indigenous people are organizing and asserting their rights. Standing Rock in North Dakota was a key moment where some 200 nations came together to resist the Keystone XL pipeline. New terms entered the lexicon of resistance, such as water protectors and stewards of the land. Keystone and other struggles continue, as does corporate capitalism's monomaniacal drive for profits, regardless of the cost to Mother Nature and indigenous peoples. Chief Seattle once said, The earth does not belong to us. We belong to the earth. We should heed his words. Our guest today is Winona LaDuke. She's an internationally renowned environmental activist and spokesperson for indigenous rights. At the age of 17, she spoke at the United Nations on behalf of Native Americans. She is a founding member of Women of All Red Nations and director of the Land Recovery Project on the White Earth Reservation in Minnesota. She's the author of All Our Relations, Recovering the Sacred, and the Winona LaDuke Chronicles. She spoke at the University of Montana in Missoula. Winona LaDuke begins with a greeting in Ojibwe. I'm from the White Earth Reservation and Bear Clan, and I'm really honored to be here with you uh, You asked me to speak about um, the idea of being good ancestors. And, you know, as I think about this moment in time and who we are, we got a pretty good gig. You know, I live in a place where you can still drink the water from a lake. I live in a place where you can get sugar from a tree. 
wild rice is in abundance. I live in a place that, you know, we, we, we have a good life that the Creator gave us. And, and I would like to keep that covenant. That's how I think of it and how I think we are instructed. Is that we have this agreement with the Creator in the natural world to do our part. You know, to do our part and to, and to be good humans. And so this lecture is a little bit about that and kind of the conundrum we got ourselves into and how we're going to get ourselves out from my perspective. So I'm going to start with talking about making America great again. <laughs> so this is my idea of when America was great. The 8,000 varieties of corn. You know, we was all pretty busy over here before everybody came over. You know, I mean, a lot of agrobiodiversity, tremendous agrobiodiversity. And I think about that because that's when America was great, is when there was 8,000 varieties of corn. America was great when there was 50 million buffalo. That'd be when America was great. Single largest migratory herd in the world transformed ecosystems. And that same, and, and lived in a territory where there were 250 different species of grass, this territory. Tremendous biodiversity. You know, that is where life is, is in biodiversity. And today in this same landscape, you and I know that that does not exist. You know, thank, thankfully there is still the bison range and I would like to see the control of that and the management of that returned to the Salish and Kootenai people. Because that is how America is going to get great, by returning some stuff that was taken. We just, that's how you fix things. But, you know, in the same territory where there were once 50 million buffalo, there are today about 28 million cattle that require an entire fossil fuels economy to take care of them. And everybody here knows that, like, a cow will flee a blizzard, will, will run from it, but a buffalo will walk into it. If you want to think of the animals that are going to survive in the time of climate change, you might look at those guys. So that's when America was great. America was great when the skies were blackened with passenger pigeons, when every river and lake you could drink from, and when the fish were in great abundance. That is when America was great. And I want to remember that, and I want to say I want it back. You know, because I am someone, you know, America suffers from a great deal of historical amnesia and also ecological amnesia. With the transience of Americans, people do not live in the same place as their grandparents or their great-grandparents, and they certainly have no idea of what was there. They don't remember that that was the place where the wild rice was. Or maybe that was the place where the buffaloes were. But in our territory, we still have that wild rice. And this is kind of the conflict. And I don't want to misrepresent the situation and say, like, that there's a way to, to kind of, like, converge those worldviews, because there is not. You know, there are two different, very different worldviews of how one should relate to this world. And, you know, I refer to it as Windigo economics, the economics of cannibalism. And I think that this is the time when we start discussing what that looks like. Everyone in Montana knows almost every Indian reservation has a pretty good-sized dam on it. And those dams were not for us. Instead of a covenant, the relationship of constant level of consumption and a constant level of, of extraction. You know, and so in the moment we're t of time where we are, you know, it's not going so great. This is a picture from um, Fort McMurray, uh, which is up in the middle of the tar sands, and this was a fire that they had two years ago that, you know, I don't know if you saw that fire, but there was smoke from those fires in Ontario and in Alberta in northern Minnesota. 
And some days you would wake up and it would be a red sky. You know, so we see that. But this could have been the entire West Coast, you know, of the United States. This could have been the campfire. You know, but this is what, and, and I have flown into Missoula before and I've seen firefighters come in. You know, and we all know that this is what is going on. This is what climate change looks like. This is what happens as a consequence of climate change. I mean, there are many aspects, but, you know, they are saying that Munich Re, the world's largest reinsuring company, suggested that in, by 2020, uh, we would be spending 20% of world uh, GDP, GNP on climate change-related disasters. Now, they might have been a little high or a little low. I have no idea, but all I know is that no one has a plan for this one. You know, what we have is a lot of tribes, states, cities going like this. When the reality is, is that around us, the decisions that have been made in this economy that has consumed more than it needs and has been highly extractive, you know, we have no plan collectively on how, on how we're going to survive this next stage. You know, at this moment in time, as I talked about the scorched path or the green path, I am with all of you. I've spent my entire life in the fossil fuel era. You know, I've had a great time. Do you all have a pretty good time? It's okay. Admit it. It's been a blast. <laughs> Went to drive-ins. I flew around. Remember drive-in movies, you know? I mean, I, I get my, sometimes I get my flowers from Columbia two days after they are picked. <laughs> I like to eat my goji berries from the Himalayas or something. I always laugh at that, that, you know, that organic food. I mean, I eat all organic food mostly, but I just laugh. Because I remember one time my niece was there and she had this like perfect vegetarian meal consisting of like goji berries and coconut flakes and, you know, all this other cool stuff. And she's like, look. I was like, yeah, the carbon footprint of that vegetarian meal, like really high. You know, so my point is, is that, you know, we live in this, this period of time and I've enjoyed it. And what I'm really after is kind of a graceful transition out of it. And, you know, in the, in the big picture, we've entered this era where we've, we've jacked our society up on fossil fuels. You know, each of our households is consuming a vast amount. And most of our lifestyles are predicated on, on access to cheap fossil fuels. And so, you know, we've, we've become addicted. That's the reality. We're all addicts. And the thing with addicts is that addicts do a lot of bad stuff. You know, I'm be honest with you, and you all know it, because some of you probably have addicts in your family, and we, you know, rationalize, and they lie, and they, it's always your problem. You know, and, and we've entered this era, which Montana is well into, which is an era known as extreme extraction, which means that you're kind of at the bottom of the barrel. So everything that else that's out there to get is like not easy. There's not like oil just like gushing anymore. <laughs> so extreme extraction, you know, lopping off the top of 500 mountains in Appalachia. That's some extreme behavior. And that's not even for coal for this country. That's coal that's being exported, Right. Extreme behavior, extreme extraction is, extreme energy is drilling 20,000 feet under the ocean. Because you can. And hoping that that's going to work out for you. Right? Until you get the deep water horizon. Extreme extraction is blowing up the bedrock of Mother Earth. Shoving 602 chemicals down there. And hoping what goes down will not come up. Fracking. 
right? Bottom of the barrel. Extreme extraction is tar sands. Dirtiest oil in the world. You know, and, and at a certain point, you got to say, how bad's your habit? What you can do. And I, I want to be one of the people that says, we didn't leave the Stone Age because we ran out of rocks. We're going to leave the fossil fuel era because it's time. You know, in the era of extreme extraction, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, what, what we're doing in our community, but I, you know, I spent the last five years fighting pipelines. And, um, you know, I, I didn't grow up and say, I want to fight pipelines. This was like not my plan. My plan was to continue wild rice harvesting, grow organic food, and build a renewable energy economy. That's, that's a good one, huh? Y'all like that? That seemed pretty good. You know, and then one day they announced this proposal to put this big pipeline across our territory. And this pipeline was called the Sandpiper. And it was a fracked oil pipeline out of North Dakota. And they announced that pipeline's going to come in across our territory. And you can see my reservation, White Earth, which is where that line is supposed to go. And they announced it. And I said, that's not going to work out. You know, and so I go and I start studying up on pipelines. And, you know, I'm like all of you. I'm not, you know, pipelines. I was just like, well, that's a pipeline. And I'm actually not opposed to pipelines. Like, I really like water and sewer. You know what I'm saying? It's like not the pipe, it's what's in it is the problem. Right? And we have in this country, as most people know, like crumbling infrastructure. And one of the things is that they want to put in, rather than fix old infrastructure, they just want to put in brand new infrastructure for oil companies. And that's my problem, is I want pipelines for people, not for oil companies. Right? That's kind of all I'm thinking about. So... Then I this pipeline, and I was like, that's not going to work. So we go get a bunch of, you know, get ourselves educated about it and learn a lot about it. And then we started informing our own community. And then, you know, we, did a, we started informing the non-Indian people in our area, like, about this pipeline project coming in. And my theory was as if you could get the Norwegians mad. <laughs> you know, they're like a persistent, plucky bunch, you know, and they were like... So we built a multiracial alliance with a lot of Norwegians and Swedes, and we showed up at every hearing... You know, we had a lot of ceremonies and a lot of, you know, civic participation. And then this lawsuit was filed by this little group called Friends of the Headwaters. And that lawsuit said to the state of Minnesota that you should do an environmental impact statement on the proposed 640,000 barrel a day pipeline. You shouldn't just, like, let them do it. And then we had to, we, and, and so we had to sue them to get them to do an EIS. Like, to me, I'd like the system to work. You know what I mean? I feel like the system's supposed to work. And, and so we had to sue them, and then they appealed that. And then uh, the, finally the appeals court ordered them to do an environmental impact statement on this proposed pipeline project called the Sandpiper. So that was like two and a half, three years in, battling away. And just after they started that, that EIS on that process, the Enbridge Corporation canceled the Sandpiper. They canceled the pipeline. So what I want to say is it is possible to defeat a big pipeline project. 2016, we defeated the Enbridge Corporation, third largest corporation in Canada, and the biggest pipeline company. And then what that company did is that company, the Enbridge Corporation, purchased 28% of the Dakota Access Pipeline, shored that up financially, and so we followed them out to North Dakota. How many of you went out to Standing Rock? Oh, that's like so great. Fellow veterans from Standing Rock, nice to see you all. So people know what this was like out there. You know, so we followed them out there. Enbridge, we followed them out there, and this is what we saw. And this is what we saw when they put the dogs on our people. And when they put the dogs on our people, I called Enbridge. You know, they, 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 had, had, they had appointed some people to talk to us. They were called the tribal liaisons. 
We refer to them as the Indian whispers. And so we burned through a couple of Indian whispers, and then they gave me somebody more important to talk to. That was the Indian listener. And she was up in Calgary. Her name was Linda Cody. I was like, Linda, you got to call the dogs off. You got to call the dogs off. You know, you just financed 38% of that pipeline. You got a lot of money in it, and you need to call the dogs off. And she said, uh, you know, she didn't respond. You know, nothing. No, nothing. No, I texted her. I, I called her. I wrote her. And I, so I hold Enbridge responsible for, it's, it was 20, 28% of the injuries, 28% of the, the uh, this is what you saw out there, and this is what you saw out there. Now this, I didn't really understand what that equipment was until I had to ask someone, but the piece of equipment on the right is called an MRAP, Mine Resistant Armored Personnel Carrier. And so that is used in the military. And that, it says Stutzman County. And if anybody knows anything about Stutzman County, Stutzman County might have 5,000 people in it. You know, they really have no need for an MRAP. You understand what I'm saying? Like, that drives through a building, and there's not any buildings in Stutzman County. (laughs) Y'all understand, it's like eastern Montana. So why you got something that looks like that, right? And the second piece of equipment there is called an LRAD, long-range acoustic device, and that's intended to blow your eardrums out. And so this is all what happens when you, when you surplus military equipment to civilian police forces. And this is something that should not happen in this country. You should not be surplusing military equipment to civilian police forces so that they can protect corporations. And this question to me of should the rights, you know, basically should the rights of corporations supersede the rights of persons? People in this room likely know that under the law, corporations are considered natural persons or considered artificial persons under the law. They, ha- they are bestowed, and in addition with the Citizens United, they are bestowed with certain rights. And I feel like, you know, so I've been thinking a lot about this. And if a corporation is a person, like, first of all, they aren't a person because a person has a soul. <laughs> and a corporation does not have a soul, Right? But if they want to be called a person, it seems to me like after you go through about three or four corporate mergers, you suffer from a multiple personality disorder. <laughs> if y'all understand what I'm saying, and so you would not actually be competent in court to stand as a person. This is like my new argument on their argument. It's like, so I think that you know, in the, you know, this is one of the things we're going to have to untangle. Is the rights of you know humans versus the rights of corporations, and and just the brutality that we experienced at Standing Rock, you know. And for those of you who were there, we know, you know, I did not sustain any injuries, and I was not arrested, you know. But my family was arrested, and my family was injured, and I lost a horse at Standing Rock, and I, you know, I I will never forgive North Dakota for the thirty-eight million dollars worth of military that they unleashed on me, you know. And as we face them again in Minnesota as we face Enbridge, you know, we have said, you are not bringing the tanks here, you know, because we will not stand for it. You know, so it'll be interesting to see what happened in Minnesota, but this is, you know, at the, towards the winter in Standing Rock, and, you know, that is a lot to, to accomplish, to be able to feed 3,000 people in the middle of the winter when you're barricaded in. You know, it's remarkable what our people were able to do. And I just want to say that because when people work together, you can make a change and you can make a difference. You know, for, for many of us, Standing Rock was really a Selma moment in the environmental movement. 
You know, this moment where all of your metal and determination is tested as you face down large multinational corporations with lots of guns. And you say, we're still standing. You know, we're still standing. You know, and that is, that is really, you know, in my experience, it is a very significant impact on all of us, and it remains so today. And as I think about it, you know, when, the, when Trump came in and approved that pipeline, which is wrong, you know, this company came back to us, Enbridge, and they announced line three, which is a tar sands pipeline of 915,000 barrels a day. And we have been facing them now for six years. And, you know, this, um, you know, we are battling them in the courts and we are battling them in the regulatory system in the United States. But what I want to say is that if you missed your opportunity to go to Standing Rock, if they issue the rest of those permits and move ahead this summer, camping in Minnesota is very nice. <laughs> and, you know, half of the proposed pipeline in northern Minnesota, the, the Enbridge line, tar sands pipeline that we are fighting, you know, half of that line is on public land and none of that line is built. My position is, is that I'm a member of the public <laughs> and I can camp for up to 14 days on public land. <laughs> and camping is nice in Minnesota. You can camp right by a lake on the pipeline, you know, on the pipeline that they will not build. But this is our, you know, our, our larger battle. And just like in the last part of my, what is wrong with the system, I just want to point this out to you is this is a map of pipelines that are proposed in, in North America. And this is because they are, they are rebuilding the in infrastructure of, of this country and of Canada, which is a pretty dysfunctional economy in itself. But if you look at this map, there were five pipelines proposed two years ago. And those five pipelines to get the landlocked tar sands, dirtiest oil in the world, out. This one up there on the top is called Energy East. That goes from um, Alberta to New Brunswick. The second pipeline was called Enbridge Northern Gateway. Third pipeline is called Trans Mountain. Fourth pipeline is the Keystone XL. And the fifth pipeline is Line 3, Enbridge's Line 3. And so that's just to give you a little picture of the North American pipeline, tar sands pipeline battles. So having said that, what I want to point out is that the Energy East pipeline, the longest pipeline, never received approval of the National Energy Board because the premier of none of those provinces, nor the mayor of Montreal wanted that pipeline. So that pipeline never happened and is never going to happen. That second pipeline, the Northern Gateway Pipeline of Enbridge, also did not happen. Huge opposition, not approved. So we're down to three pipelines. Y'all follow me on this? Dirtiest oil in the world. Third pipeline being um, Trans Mountain. They're moving ahead with it. Canadian you know, pipeline, but owned by a Texas company called Kinder Morgan. In um, August, you know, a little bit earlier, that the, the unrest, the civil disobedience, the arrests, and the opposition to that pipeline had grown so massively that they were not getting anywhere. And so Kinder Morgan said, you know, Canada, we hope you can, you know, we want to back out a little bit because we don't feel confident about the social climate for this pipeline. I was like, no kidding. And then what happened, somebody might have noticed this, is that the Canadian uh, Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, panicked and he bought that pipeline, nationalized the pipeline, purchasing for $4.9 billion, known as the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline. I think we should just call it Trudeau West. And so he spent $4.9 billion on a pipeline. And the day after he bought the pipeline, the Canadian Appeals Court 
ruled that all of the permits were null and void on that pipeline because they had not consulted with First Nations. So, <laughs> so where are we at? Three down, right? And, and, and that is in court, you know, but I'm saying, and so Canada's kind of in a big mess over that because spending $4.9 billion on something that isn't happening is expensive. Then Keystone, and we all know what Trump did is, you know, he's this little fairy wand and he is like, I'm just going to reverse everything that Obama did because I'm president. And as you know, the Montana court said, you can't just reverse things because you're president. You have to give a reason, you know? And so that is now in litigation here, right? It's in the appeals court or it's, it's here in Montana and they were sent back. Finally, the last pipeline, that leaves one pipeline, right? And that pipeline, that is our battle at home. And that is going to be, you know, we hope to, to, that the system works. If the system works, they will not ever approve this pipeline. You know, if the system does not work, we'll be in, in a very brutal battle in Minnesota this summer. And, uh, you know, but as I said, camping in Minnesota will be really nice. And this is what it looks like in Minnesota on the ground. This is not North Dakota. This is thousands of people, 68,000 people testified against that pipeline. And um, people are, this is this summer, um, a bunch of clergy in Bemidji, downtown Bemidji, as they started to amass the police forces to, to oppose us. Um, a bunch of clergy joined together and blocked the streets in downtown uh, Bemidji. And then uh, we all got arrested. There's my arrest photo. <laughs> it's like all happy, huh? Well, it took them a long time to arrest me. So I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to go home now. Thanks. But, you know, so my thoughts are, um, you know, uh, I guess what I was going to say is if you're going to get arrested, might as well just link yourself right up to a church person. <laughs> Your sentencing will be a lot more lenient. <laughs> so the story I'm telling you is that you know, keep at it. And uh, you got a shot at stopping these lines and a lot of stupid projects. Um, but more than that, you know, the, the answers to me are found in the next economy. So I refer to this as the sitting bull plan. Some people might refer to this as the Green New Deal, but I refer to this as the sitting bull plan. And, and I think about that great leader who so long ago, you know, said, was, was a great political strategist, a spiritual leader, and a military strategist. But what he said is, let us put our minds together to see what kind of future we can make for our children. And that is what we really must do. You know, this future, if you want your future to be made for you by someone in Helena or somebody in Washington, D.C., you're probably going to be pretty disappointed with what they line out for you. If you want to make, you know, if, you, if we are the people who are going to make our future then no time like the present to begin thinking of what that looks like. So I refer to this as the sitting bull plan. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what that looks like. You know, the next economy will be regenerative. It will be renewable. It will be organic. And in my estimation, a lot of women should make more decisions. <laughs> the, the last 200 years has been a lot of poor decision making. You know, the fact is, is that's, that renewable energy produces far more many jobs per capita, you know, and per dollar than does do fossil fuels. 
This is what the next economy looks like. Is I'm not sure how it worked out that Indian reservations are the windiest place in this country. <laughs> but we are. And I think that anybody from Blackfeet knows that is true. Is that right? It's like, yeah, it looks really windy, really windy up there. But, you know, you guys have like class seven wind, as does most in the northern plains. And so to me, um, you know, and that is the mark of both an export economy, if you're looking at kind of the big picture of things, because like if you have 17,000 times more wind than you can use, you might want to share it. <laughs> you know, so the next economy is what energy justice looks like is that we're not the last people to get renewable energy in our communities. But we're the people who are not only, we're not only at the table. Like my position is, is like, my friend Bob Goff used to say, you're either at the table or you're on the menu. <laughs> right, y'all follow me on this, right? You know, and so I don't, I don't actually want to be just at the table. I want to set the table. And I want to figure out what we're eating. You understand? I mean, because like to me, this whole question of what, where we are going, we need to be very proactive in what that looks like and redefining the terrain. And so this um, is some work that I've, I've just started looking at, which is uh, railroads and the intersection. A lot of reservations actually have railroads near them. But it is interesting, there's this group, the Solutionary Rail Project. And what they are looking at is electrifying railroads. Montana certainly has a lot of railroads, but we are the last country to have electrified trains. And just to give you an example of that, so if you think about it, if you want to rebuild, you know, the, the equivalent of the Marshall Plan being the Sitting Bull Plan, if you want to rebuild the infrastructure in this country, which we have a D in infrastructure, right? And so if we wanted to start working on that, you might as well do it well. And so one of the significant differences in, in, in how you move things is the difference between combustion and electricity. So the engine in a car is only about 16% efficient. And the vehicle that most of us drove here in, a combustion engine is about 16% efficient. An electric engine is 65% efficient. You know, similarly, if you look at trains... In the situation of a trains, like 95% of the electricity that is generated if you had an electric train goes directly to the wheels, as opposed to 30% of it makes it to the wheels if you are running a diesel engine. And so one of the proposals that these guys have, the solutionary rail, is in electrifying the trains. And in electrifying these trains, actually using the rail lines as a way to, tra to transmit electricity, to have the power lines, right? Because you already have an energy corridor. I'm not the person to sort that out. I'm pr probably the person who's going to work on it on my reservation because my reservation has one rail line that goes through three of our main villages and is very rarely used now. And my tribe should really look at, at both electrifying it and rebuilding the rail system so it works. You know, because everybody would probably prefer to have a rail system that works. We live in a country where I think the description by someone was that we have a rail system that would be an embarrassment to Bulgaria. Right? Y'all understand what I'm saying. It's like, if we're going to be a first world country, let's be like classy first world country. Not like what we got. Right? You're listening to Winona LaDuke, Native American Eco-Justice. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling 1-800-444-1977. That's 
888-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. So this is another example of how you make a change. This is a solar project on the Navajo Reservation. This is the Kayenta Solar Project. 13,000 homes are served off of this project. There's a huge amount of potential in a lot of our communities. You know, Navajo has huge potential for renewable energy generation, particularly solar, and also has a huge amount of transmission lines that come from the five coal-fired generators that have been on the Navajo Reservation. And so potential to actualize it at a small scale and potential to actualize it at a a much larger scale. You know, and and there's a lot of work on on putting solar on brownfields. And this is a project... In the, in the middle of the tar sands. This woman is named Molina Lubicon. She's a good friend of mine, and I was on her master's uh, committee at the University of Victoria a couple of years ago. And for her master's project, her village, a little buffalo, just in the south side of the, of the, the tar sands, surrounded by oil extraction, um, they, they didn't have electricity at their health clinic. What they had is a diesel generator, to power the electricity, to power their health clinic. And I just want to point that out because that's like a snapshot of what energy justice does not look like. When you are producing all this, have all the impacts in your community, have all the health impacts, and you don't even have power in your village, right? And so for her master's thesis, she put up, she didn't just talk about it, she put up 20 kilowatts of solar to power her health clinic. That's Molina. Lubicon, really a gifted young woman. And this is me with our little solar project on my reservation. And um, I was like, Molina, I'm going to try to do that too. And so this is 20 kilowatts of solar that powers a tribal school in my village. And um, here we are putting up solar thermal panels. You know, Montana, this would work really well too. So it's super cold in Minnesota in the wintertime, but it's also sunny. And that's Montana. And so within that, on the south-facing walls, you can install one of these panels, and that's a panel that's flat. It's about to go up into that space. And that panel, 4 by 8 panel, um, is you know, dark inside, and so the sun comes into it, and when it hits about 90 degrees, the thermostat cranks on the blower fan, and it blows warm air into the house. And in um, northern Minnesota and in, and in you know, the Dakotas, some of those places where they've had these panels, you can save about 20 to 30% of your heating bill if you have solar thermal. And so you know, in the time of climate change, in the time when more of our grid will be going down, in the time where more and more people face fuel poverty, in the time when we don't know what's going to happen with the weather, you know, no time like the present to try to reduce some of the risk for your communities by doing, you know, this is like a really low-hanging fruit. And these things cost about, I don't know, $2,000 or so. And then the installation is probably another 1000 And then this is work that we are doing in my community. And this work is on um, growing back a lot of our old varieties. So in the time of, of climate change and in the moment that we're in, it turns out that a lot of these old varieties are a lot more resilient. This variety, it's called a Bear Island Flint. I, I want to say that I was an undergraduate at Harvard University, but my father went to school to the eighth grade, and he came to see me one day, and he's, you know, he's super proud of me, and he said, uh, Winona, you're a really smart young woman. Um, you're really smart, but I don't want to hear your philosophy if you can't grow corn. <laughs> 
And so, and so um, I became a corn grower um, at a certain point. But, you know, like that was like a really interesting to say to a young woman who's like studying so hard. You know, but there is a really great, um, plants have taught me a great deal. And so the variety that I grow mostly is this Bear Island Flint. And I, I received about this much from this um, plant geneticist. And, and I received it, you know, about 25 years ago. It was like a little handful had been collected on Bear Island and, you know, kept in the Grin Seed Bank and they'd grown it out. And so now we have fields of it. And the first time I grew it, it was kind of short and I thought I'd failed. And um, then I uh, realized all it really had to do was to put on an ear. Actually, it was about this tall. But I thought, you know, I'm not that good of a corn grower. But then I looked, and it just had to put on an ear. That's all a corn has to do. And it turns out that my corn varieties, um, you know, they're shorter. But, but um, it turns out that they were frost-resistant, and they were drought-resistant. And also, when the big winds came through, they knocked over the six-foot-tall Monsanto Roundup Ready varieties. But mine stood. So... Twice the protein, half the calories. This is what you make hominy out of. And the other thing is that when you have a dry corn, it has a low carbon impact to, to store it. These other varieties are a couple other varieties. I've never grown the Pawnee Eagle corn. I just think it's a stunning corn. Huh? That's what I mean, the tremendous agrobiodiversity. And the other corn is a, is a pink lady corn, and I have grown that. And people used to ask me, how come I grew pink corn? And I said, because I like pink. And someone said, no, you should grow blue corn. I said, no, you should grow blue corn. There's 8,000 varieties. You can grow whatever color you want. <laughs> you know, and so to me, the tremendous agrobiodiversity and the questions of food security. You know, in the time that we face now, you know, the average meal travels 1,500 miles or 1,400 miles from farmer to table. What's going to happen when the price of fossil fuels increases? And what's going to happen in times of climate change? You definitely want to relocalize your food economy. And, you know, in that, reducing the carbon footprint of your food economy is a significant part of beginning to mitigate climate change. And then, this is what I do. My favorite project is my hemp. And so I am... That's right, very good. And so I'm a hemp farmer. I, for three years, um, had a permit from the state of Minnesota to grow industrial hemp. I can't grow anything with THC in it. I grow, I grow um, fiber hemp. And I also did grow some um, CBD varieties this year. But my primary interest is in fiber hemp. And this is my, my hemp skirt. Minnesota used to have 11 hemp mills. We used to grow our clothes. And um, we had a whole economy based on it. Not only did we have 11 hemp mills, we also made rope. And I just want it back. You know, so I've been working on it for a couple of, couple of years. And, and um, so I'm growing fiber hemp. It has three times the tensile strength of cotton. Twice as much production per acre as cotton. An average shirt and jeans takes 5,000 gallons of water if it's made of cotton. Hemp does not have the same water requirements. And um, it's just a little bit about it. Right, you can build houses. It's like a very versatile crop. And I'm really interested in the, in the future in hemp. And my, you know, Winona's Hemp is working on a new project. My project is to build a hemp mill in Minnesota. So if you're, if, if you're all interested, look at our stuff. But 
you know, I want to say is I'm, I found a mill, and the mill that I'm building on my reservation, on the rail line, next to the rail line, is uh, the mill is kind of like that Johnny Cash song, one piece at a time. You know, I'm talking about that Johnny Cash song. He gets the car and he puts it together one piece at a time, right? So my mill has all these pieces from vintage mills. And that interesting? So there's like the Sacco equipment and the, there's new equipment out of Rhode Island and New York and South Carolina and, and Italy. That cool or what? Yeah, so stay tuned. We're hoping to have one of the first operating hemp mills in our neck of the woods, for sure, a textile mill. Interested in, in textiles. And this is my wild rice. That's what we're fighting for, to protect. That's the lake that they would have put that pipeline by. But, and, you know, as we think of how to protect that same rice that my ancestors for 8,000 years have harvested on that lake, my tribe, at the end of December of 2018, passed the rights of wild rice or the rights of Monoman as a part of our tribal government. And so we're the... I just want to say that in the big picture, there's a couple other tribes. The, the Poncas have passed the rights of nature, and um, the Ho-Chunk Nation is looking at the rights of nature, but my tribe passed the rights of wild rice, recognizing right, wild rice has a right to uh, live uncontaminated, has a right to regeneration, has a right to be free of genetic contamination or genetic engineering has a right to exist because we are people who are born of wild rice. It's a part of our migration story and it is our most sacred food. And so, you know, in this moment in time where we are in, where we have a legal set of legal institutions that have upheld the rights of corporations over the rights of people, what you have is the counter to that. And the more enlightened practice, not only of tribes, but of countries like Bolivia and Ecuador and Aotearoa or New Zealand, which have recognized the rights of nature. And, and so my, my tribe has done that. And I, and I say that because the future, um, you know, you know, people are, people, people, you know, are reviewing that. And, you know, my point is, is that legal systems are not, um, stagnant. You know, there was a time when I and every other, you know, whether as black or native person, wasn't actually considered a person under the law in this country. You know? And now uh, we are considered to be people under the law, rid of habeas corpus, right? To be considered as full human beings. And so there was a time when the law did not recognize our rights as, as human beings. And so you know, the legal institutions will evolve. But as I said at the beginning, you know, the, the, the rights of Mother Earth and the rights of, of nature, the rights of our beings, is not something that the United States is familiar with in its legal canons that came from papal law and, and, and dominion. And so it is, it is time to look beyond legal canons um, to indigenous legal canons, and the knowledge of other nations like Bolivia, which declared almost a decade ago the rights of Mother Earth. Kind of in closing, as I said, uh, this is what Minnesota looks like. These are water protectors. <laughs> Millions of people come to camp in Minnesota. We hope more will come. 
And uh, we launched the Welcome Water Protectors campaign because I was, we was always laughing because they have those signs up north that say, Welcome Duck Hunters or Welcome Fishermen, right? And I said, let us welcome our water protectors. And so here's some of our water protectors and, uh, you know, please join us this summer. You know, there's something about a butterfly that is really remarkable. You know, we all know the phrase metamorphosis, but contained in that, a butterfly does something that other species don't do, that when there's a caterpillar that begins to transition to become a butterfly, like its first round, there's these cells appear, and those cells are called imago cells. And those cells uh, begin to appear, and the first ones are killed off. And then more come, and those are killed off too. And then more come, and they're killed off too. And at a certain point, the imago cells is what they're called. The imago cells overtake the cells that were the caterpillar in that being that is like liquefied in, inside the chrysalis. And they overtake them, and they transform that caterpillar into a butterfly. And that is how that change happens. The word imago is the same word as the root word for imagination. I know and feel that we are the imago cells of this time. And change happens. You know, it is really, change is inevitable. It is a question of who controls the change. I found this quote in... uh, There's a group out on Pine Ridge called the Thunder Valley Community Development Corporation. I was reading their annual report a couple of years ago, and I said, man, that's powerful what you guys said there. So I call up my friend Nick Tilson, one of my nephews. and He used to run Thunder Valley Community Development Corporation, really a remarkable initiative on Pine Ridge Reservation to transform that community near Kyle. And I said, "Uh, hey, Nick, can I use this quote? I'm writing something. He's like, yeah, auntie, yeah, but let me just tell you where that quote came from. He said, uh, we were in, uh, you know, a bunch of us were going into sweat. He said, and, you know, a bunch of Oglalas is what he's talking about. We were going into sweat. And he said, we're a bunch of Oglala guys. We're going to sweat. And, and he said, um, and we were talking, and we are kind of talking smack. You know, we are talking about this person did that, and that person did this. And, you know, I just want to say that, like, even sometimes when you're off to be your sacred being, you're still stuck in smack on the way in. Um, you know, but... So they're doing that, he said, and then we kind of, you know, we went in the lodge, and then he said, the spirit came into the sweat lodge. This is what he said. He said, the spirit came into the sweat lodge, and this is what that spirit said. This is the quote. What he said is the spirit said, how long are you going to let others determine the future for your children? Are we not warriors? When our ancestors went into battle, they did not know what the consequences were going to be. All they knew is that if they did nothing, things would not go well for their children. Do not operate out of a place of fear. Operate out of a place of hope. Because with, with hope, everything is possible. The time is now. The movement is here. And that's what that spirit told those guys. And so in this moment where we have this opportunity to look out for our descendants as our ancestors looked out for us. And as they, you know, looked and wondered what would happen, they thought about seven generations from now. They thought about how they could care not only for themselves, but for their relatives, whether they had wings or fins or roots or paws. 
They thought about how they could reaffirm their covenant and make things right. You know, and in the big picture, there's a lot of crazy stuff we have done as humans. They call this the Anthropocene era now. You know, because we have created, we are like the dominant force. You know, we are the dominant force in changing ecology. But, you know, someplace in that, we must remember how beautiful we are. And I think about that because corn in itself tells you that story. Corn does not exist in nature. In nature, it is chiosinte. It is chiosinte. But it is the hands and prayers of individuals who collected and saved seeds and thought that made 8,000 varieties of corn and made beautiful corn with eagles on each, you know, on each kernel. It made it of all those colors. Corn is one of those wondrous beings that is our relationship and our covenant to that natural world. And so, you know, we are here in this moment. What a great spiritual opportunity we have to remember, you know, to not have historical or ecological amnesia and to remember this moment we have and to, and to be the people that our descendants can be proud of. Miigwech. Thank you for your time. Kiana, for all that you do. Our first question tonight, Winona, is what role do non-Native allies have in this moment in time? We're all in this together. You know, I mean, that's what I know is that if we're going to change this world and the situation that we're in, we must all work. And everybody has their little gift. And everybody has their gift. But it is the working together part that is going to, you know, is, is going to make those changes happen. And at, at not just at the same time, I think that, you know, um, over the last years, people have understood that, you know, we're the people that didn't take a piece of the pie. I don't know how else to put it. Like, I live in a community that nothing ever really trickled down to, so I didn't really get a piece of the pie, so I don't want a bigger piece of the pie. I just want a totally different pie. <laughs> you know, so in that, there is this, you know, it's, there is this whole different worldview, and the leadership for the next economy really must come from outside of the paradigm. And a lot of that leadership is going to come from people who figured out how to live here for 10,000 years without messing it up. So working in allyship, you know, is going to be very, very critical. And, and looking strategically at it. I mean, the remaining biodiversity in the world, a good portion of it is in indigenous territories. So if you want to, if you want to do that, you know, you want to protect that, you know, work with us in that. Dear Winona, what happened the last time you felt your heart and soul warmed to the core? Wow, that's like a heavy question. <laughs> last week? <laughs> I mean, I live a great life. I mean, I'm super grateful to be hanging out with you. You know, I live in the middle of my reservation. I have uh, a lot of children who call me grandma. A lot of them, they don't actually have a grandma. That's the reality of a lot of Indian communities. A lot of people die way too young. And uh, I have 17 horses. And I saw eight of those horses out with a bunch of kids on them 
some of them urban Indian kids who had never ridden. So like, how great is it to be in that moment? I mean, it just kind of makes me teary thinking about how beautiful that was. And that was like last weekend. So, you know, each, each, each day, try to figure out how you can make something, you know, or, or nurture something. I consider myself like a doula. You know what I'm saying? The doula of the next economy. We all need to be the doulas. Or the doulas of the new leadership. You know, let us be those who help encourage that. So, when seeing beautiful young kids be so happy, us make me super happy. Thank you. What is the best way to support, get involved, volunteer with a local tribal community? Well, I don't know all the issues out here or all the opportunities. I know that the Salish and Kootenai, for instance, on the return of the bison range, you know, I know that there are a multitude of ways to ally and to work with indigenous communities here, you know, nations also making sure that the university has good resources and good support for native students. You know, this could be really important for a lot of the native students. Yeah. A lot of these frontline environmental battles are indigenous environmental battles. And then another whole aspect of that, which I think I you know, basically discussed in, is that you know, renewable energy, we don't want to be the last people to get that. We want to be right at the top. And I want to see a lot more partnerships with First Nations and tribes to ensure that there's this transition. Because it is so true, we have borne the brunt of America's energy policy for 50 years. Like every coal strip mine, every uranium mine, every massive oil project, the tar sands and pipelines on our territories. But it's time for justice. And justice looks like renewable energy. Justice looks like that our people have those projects and that our power is purchased. I mean, Montana is a little bit like North Dakota in terms of its political leanings. You know, it is really important, but except for Missoula, right? You're like the cool part, right? I know that. You're like, it's super funny because in North Dakota, the cool city is Fargo, which like doesn't sound as cool as Missoula. <laughs> but they just elected an Indian woman to the state legislature. So that's a whole other thing. But, you know, and I know Montana has, has a lot of voter turnout for natives. Vote, vote native. You know, if native people want to go in office, vote for them. You know, and I was really proud in North Dakota because... Um, if you followed the North Dakota politics, they had a, a piece of legislation passed which uh, made it impossible to vote without a street address. In North Dakota, do you all remember this? And that, you know, that affected a lot of Native people because we had a P.O. box, right? And it affected white people too, but it was particularly targeted towards the Native people. And so the man who had in, introduced that legislation was defeated by a Native woman. Ruth Anna Buffalo is the state representative from, from uh, South Fargo. And so, you know, I'm saying it takes a little while to come around, but that woman is courageous and tough. That's us. Thanks for your questions. Thank you. Thank you. That was Winona LaDuke, Native American Eco-Justice. She spoke at the University of Montana in Missoula. Winona LaDuke is a founding member of Women of All Red Nations and director of the Land Recovery Project on the White Earth Reservation in Minnesota. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and part of the nonprofit media organization Rise Up.
We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature progressive voices rarely heard in the media, such as Michael Yates, Leilani Farha, Dar Jamal, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and Wallace Shawn. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Winona LaDuke on Native American Eco-Justice, call us at one 800 444 Seven seven. Again, that number is one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Or you can order on our website alternativeradio.org. Beth Ann Austin recorded the program. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Thank you. 